Thank you for joining the Southeast PTTC podcast series. Every episode covers an important topic pertaining to the work of substance misuse prevention professionals. Stay tuned for more episodes coming soon, and be sure to visit us online at pttcnetwork.org backslash southeast. Welcome to Youth Opioid Addiction, What Preventionists Need to Know. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Mark Fishman. This podcast discusses how young people are disproportionately impacted by the opioid epidemic. We will explore strategies for prevention and how the treatment of other substance use disorders can help in our efforts. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome, everybody. We're really excited today about this topic. And so the topic is youth opioid addiction. We're extremely excited to have Dr. Mark Fishman with us today to present this webinar. Dr. Fishman is a nationally and internationally known addiction psychiatrist. He's board certified in addiction psychiatry and addiction medicine. He's a faculty member at Johns Hopkins University and is a leading researcher in both addiction prevention and treatment. Dr. Fishman is also a health administrator. He leads the Maryland Treatment Center's Mountain Manor, which is a regional behavioral health care provider. So, Dr. Fishman, off to you. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be invited uh, to be with you. And uh, I'm going to be talking about youth opioid addiction with a particular emphasis on prevention and aspects of this current crisis of relevance to people with an interest in prevention. I'm assuming that's you as preventionists. And that's really so exciting to me. Um, as you'll hear me say again and again, uh, as you all know, we're in the midst of this uh, terrible crisis, an opioid epidemic. Uh, as you'll see, it disproportionately affects young people. But as you guys know, more than anyone, uh, as specialists in prevention, almost all epidemics require prevention as the mainstay. There is no way that we are going to be able to exclusively treat our way out of this crisis, as is the case with most big health crisis, crises and epidemics. So prevention is critical. So this is the outline of what I'm going to show you today. And uh, any of these topics could take up an entire webinar, even a whole day-long symposium. So uh, it'll be an overview. We'll skim over some topics. Uh, I'll move at a whirlwind pace. But I wanted to give you a flavor of some of the things that I consider to be key. I'm going to quickly go over the scope of the problem, but I won't spend too much time on that because you know how terrible it is. I'm going to frame the day with this conceptual issue that opioid use disorder, opioid addiction, although a critical issue in the current crisis, is really part of a continuum of a broader disorder, a broader illness that is substance use disorder writ large. And while most of the conversation, unfortunately, from the media, from the public, from policy, I believe has been somewhat distorted on opiates as an isolated phenomena, and for sure that's important, we have missed, I think, in the broader conversation how integrally related opioid use disorder is to other aspects of youth vulnerability and thinking about that continuum, that broad spectrum from its earlier origins in other aspects of developmental vulnerability, I think will help us think about prevention strategies. So 
I'll give a little bit of an overview of some of the things that I consider to be highlights of developmental vulnerability, SUD, which then are in turn developmental vulnerabilities to OUD. I'm going to briefly cover four topics in particular prevention strategies, addressing the opioid supply. That's the one that everybody's heard the most about in the media. Talking about addressing youth substance use broadly, that is that intervention in non-opioid substance use disorders prior to the onset of OUD is itself prevention of OUD. Talking about the strategy of addressing co-occurring disorders. Talk about the strategy of engaging families. Then, even though this is about prevention and not about treatment, I would be remiss if I didn't just briefly give you a flavor of what those of us, me included, who focus a lot of our time on treatment, uh, see as a mainstay, which is the use of relapse prevention medications for OUD. And then I'll wrap up and hopefully we'll be able to have time for a rich conversation after. So let's launch in. So for the problem, I want you to see that for non-medical use of prescription opioids, that is analgesic painkillers, young adults and adolescents have been at the heart of this problem. Here is some decade, decade and a half data that shows that proportionately young adults in the top line and adolescents just behind them in the red line below have been per capita the most affected part of the lifespan. In an aging population, the absolute numbers of older adults that use prescription opioids non-medically are higher, but per capita and proportionately, we have this focus on young adults and adolescents. And here is the same kind of message for heroin, not so much adolescents, but young adults, again, disproportionately represented in their problems with heroin. So we have to be focused we're concerned about this current crisis, we have to be concerned about young adults and adolescents. You've seen this slide a million times, but just to remind you about the opioid overdose deaths, the green line on top is any opioid overdose death. You see that it's continuing to rise, skyrocketing out of control. And most of that, especially in the last five years, has been the orange line, other synthetic opioids, and that really means fentanyl and the fentanyl analogs illicitly manufactured in China. Just to be clear, it is young people also who are suffering from opioid overdose deaths. And if you look here at adolescents and young adults, 15 through 24, you see that in the green line, opioid overdose deaths are vastly outshadowing deaths from other substance use disorders. So that's one message that opioids are certainly the crisis that you know about, but let's not forget if you look at the other lines, cocaine, stimulants including methamphetamine and benzodiazepines, there are certainly other substances of concern that are killing our youth. All right, so you know how bad it is. Now let me just set the stage for the rest of our conversation. As I said before, thinking about OUD as part of the spectrum of the broader continuum of the illness of SUD. So the first tagline that I want you to hear, and this won't come as a shock, but I think it's important to state it explicitly. We should be thinking of addiction as a developmental disorder of pediatric onset. 
Sit with that for a minute. Let me say that again. Addiction is a developmental disorder of pediatric onset. What does that mean? That means it is an illness that has its vulnerability in the normal maturation process of young people and the ways in which that trajectory goes awry. And it has its onset among young people, among the pediatric population in the second decade of life. And although that may be obvious to you when I say it, it is not the way our society, our families, and our house of medicine view this problem. So that's gonna be what frames the rest of today's conversation. Intoxication is reinforcing and impairing across a wide range of substances. For sure, opioids are super toxic and they kill you dead in an overdose, whereas, for example, cannabis does not. But opioids are not the only intoxicating and reinforcing and impairing substances. And for most people, it begins before opioids. Loss of control over substance use proceeds along a continuum, and most people who come to problem with opiates have already lost control over a previous non-opioid substance. The earlier there is onset, and you know this, the worse there are outcomes for our youth. Earlier intervention is more effective the earlier the intervention happens, and early intervention prevents progression. So opioid addiction we should be thinking about as an advanced and more malignant stage of this broad disorder. And in that way, that advanced malignant stage is preventable. Treatable, for sure, and we're gonna talk just a little bit at the end about treatment, but the main message is that opioid addiction in young people is preventable. Okay, so that's the frame. We're gonna keep coming back to that. Let's talk a little bit about developmental vulnerability. And again, we could talk all day about this, but the idea is that we know a lot about the various vulnerability and resilience factors uh, that may predispose young people to a variety of risk behaviors, including substance use disorder. I'm gonna focus on substance use disorders. And those phenomena, those factors, those vulnerabilities are shared, again, with opioid use as a further, more advanced stage of the disorder, but it's the same developmental vulnerability that leads to nicotine, cannabis, and alcohol use, usually long before onset of opioid use. This is substance use across the lifespan. You can see on the left-hand side of the slide, the second decade of life. On the right, the rest of the lifespan compressed, so it's not exactly in proportion. And the reason for that is because the left side of this slide is where the action is. What do I mean by that? I mean, for these substances, nicotine, alcohol, cannabis, binge alcohol, and the like, the shape is relatively similar. You have onset of use in the second decade of life, that is in the mid to late teenage years, you have peak incidence in the end of the second decade, beginning of the third decade. And although there's plenty of people using on the right hand of the slide on into older adulthood, when did they begin? They began as young people. So we have to be concerned about youth with SUD because that's when they start. And we imagine, as with all remitting, relapsing chronic illnesses, the earlier you intervene in a disorder that progresses over the lifespan, the earlier you intervene before it crystallizes to its most advanced form, the more likelihood you have of being able to successfully change the trajectory towards health. So what are the vulnerabilities? 
again, we could go on all day, but we know the earlier someone uses, the higher the risk of addiction. Of course, there is normative experimentation. For most young people, that experimentation does not turn into addiction, but for many, it does. And early onset initiation of any kind is equated with higher likelihood of progression to problem use. Immaturity during critical developmental stages is part of the vulnerability, and these and other kinds of issues that we know young people, teens wrestle with are risk factors. Impulsiveness, excitement seeking, difficulties with delaying gratification, and I'm gonna show you a little video about that later, and poor executive function and inhibitory control, which we'll talk a little bit about. And the graphic here is just one example of the brain in its development towards further maturation with age, a myelination, a particular neurological uh, aspect of maturation of brain and protection. But just to make the point, it's part of the maturation of young people's mind, spirits, and brains that will eventually protect them, but it is the immaturity of their mind, spirits, and brains that makes them vulnerable. Now, I wanna show you just one very uh, compelling example of this issue of vulnerability. And I wanna use it as an illustration of how vulnerability manifests itself quite dramatically early in life for many people. You may know of the work of Walter Michel at Stanford. This is called the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment or just the Marshmallow Experiment. Uh, it is one among many examples of showing problems with executive function inhibitory control around the issue and the paradigm of temptation and its resistance or temptation and lack of resistance. That is, what is the capacity for a person to be able to postpone gratification? So the idea here is you put some six-year-olds in a room one at a time, or you can do it as a group, and you give them a marshmallow and you say, I want you to try to not eat this marshmallow for five minutes, see if you can inhibit, see if you can postpone gratification, see if you can delay. And if you don't eat the marshmallow for five minutes, I'll give you two. And you can then measure the capacity at this young age for being able to uh, impose intrinsic inhibitory control, either by whether they ate it or not, or the time latency to eating it. And the interesting thing about this is it's been repeated again and again and again across every culture, every country, every language, every socioeconomic class. And, and the, the results remain compelling and consistent. And it's amazing what its correlates are. Uh, although, of course, it's not 100%, and it's not one bite uh, of a marshmallow and you're doing forever. But it's interesting that it correlates how you do on this marshmallow test, correlates very uh, highly with academic success in elementary school, middle school, high school, high school graduation rates, college entry, college GPA, college graduation, adult employment, adult salary, incidence of substance use disorders and other risk behaviors, and marital status, and even adult self-ratings of happiness. I don't mean to over-exaggerate. Again, it's not destiny. But you can imagine and tell yourself a story that the ability to postpone gratification and resist temptation is so important uh, in accomplishing one's goals that the 
difficulty along a spectrum of vulnerability. The difficulty in doing that might lead to the kinds of vulnerabilities uh, that we would be concerned with with the onset of substance use disorders and other concurrent risk behavior. All right, now I'm going to give you another example of executive function. It's an evil test, again, invented by evil psychologists. And when I flip the slide, I quickly want you to name the color in the upper left-hand corner. So quick, name that color. Right, this is the Stroop test, as I say, invented by the evil Dr. Stroop, and it's one of many psychological tests of executive function. And you can see that there are interfering signals conveyed by the color itself and the verbal cue or the written word for the color, and they convey contradictory uh, information. And the thing that you've got to do to be able to do well at this is slow down and not say the first thing that works into your head, and you've got to review the rules, and you've got to exercise inhibitory control, and you've got to then think about the crossed wires of information. And again, inability to do that is a reflection of immaturity of executive function. Young people aren't as good at this as older folks. People who use substances are not as good at this as people who do not. And young people who use substances have that double whammy. And again, life its own self is more than a two-signal interference and impulse inhibition task. It's infinite numbers of channels. And again, being able to slow down and watch the signals for danger and risk and be able to judiciously put on the brakes and assess is something that is typically not characteristic of teens. And when it is problematic, those people are at higher risk, both for SUD and later to develop OUD. And when not only the average teen has that risk, but the teen is not average, but is below the average in terms of their maturational trajectory with executive function as measured by this group test and others, they're even more vulnerable. Okay, so on to the next topic. I'm now, as I told you, going to talk about four particular prevention strategies. And the first is addressing the opioid supply. This is one that the media is full of. And here's uh, Mrs. Winslow's soothing spirit, just to make the historical case that we've been here before. Uh, this is from the 19th century, 1880s and 1890s, when patent medicines sold in a kind of a snake oil fashion had opiates, tincture of opioid and paragoric syrup, and there may have been cocaine in them, as there was in the original recipe of Coca-Cola, and they were all dissolved in that ultimate of all solvents, alcohol, so no wonder Granny liked it, right? And no wonder Mrs. Winslow sold it for soothing, teething babies. So this is a cyclical issue. This is not our first opioid epidemic by any means, and this is not the first time that oversupply of medicinal or medicinal-like opioids have led us into trouble. So one of the things that's important to know is that uh, the House of Medicine, in particular the CDC, has done good work in trying to guide us about limiting the amounts of opioids that patients get for acute pain, especially limiting doses for chronic pain, because opioids for chronic non-cancer pain are usually not anywhere near as effective as we once thought, and in fact, are often harmful. So it's not only that they have 
side effects of potential addiction and potential overdose. They don't even really work that well. But as you can imagine, it's hard to say no in the face of patient distress. So this issue for medical practitioners to have to struggle with patients and find a balance, and as you know, in our country, nothing's ever a balance. It's either flood the supply or nobody can get the opiates they need, right? And we're swinging back the other way in an extreme way. But what we need to do is find some balance in which we can guide patients and say no when the risk-benefit analysis does not lead us to the conclusion that the good outweighs the harm. Okay, I won't spend a lot of time on that one because you've heard about it and it's in the public eye. I do want us to be careful, though, to remember that the media story about the uh, angelic, young, high-functioning high school student who was the star of the football team and had never had any deviant behavior and then sprained their ankle on the field of play and met an evil orthopedist and five minutes later was addicted to oxycodone and 10 minutes after that was injecting heroin under a bridge. I'm exaggerating with a little bit of dramatic license to make the point, so I apologize for the hyperbole. But that story is really, although I'm sure it's happened, it's not the mainstay, right? Mostly, and that's what we're going to talk about here now in this component, is that people who have used opioids, the vast majority of youth who initiate opioids have had problems with other substances. And most youth who are prescribed medical opioid analgesics do not use them non-medically, do not get into trouble when they are used appropriately. And so some youth do start with medical opioids, but most initiate with non-medical. And even more importantly, most of those young people have had loss of control with other non-opioid substances prior to initiation of opioids. So here's a little sound bite and a messaging that says uh, heroin use is part of a larger substance use problem. That's the message I'm giving you. And that the use of alcohol, cannabis, cocaine, and of course, prescription opioids uh, increase the risk of progression so an important message, most start with other substances. Uh, you will be reminded of the gateway hypothesis. Uh, many of you have heard of this, those of you who haven't. The idea is that starting with substance A increases the probability of moving to substance B, increases the probability of moving to substance C. And some will tell you that the gateway hypothesis has been debunked and it's an old-fashioned falsehood, not true. Not true. The gateway hypothesis is alive and well and has been repeatedly verified and is a good statistical modeling of this probabilistic progression. What has been debunked is the misinterpretation of the gateway hypothesis that says, and this is totally not what the gateway hypothesis was ever supposed to say, is that if you use substance A, you will necessarily progress to substance C. So one puff of cannabis and then you're going to be on a street corner buying heroin next week. No, of course not. It's about conferring progressive probabilistic risk, progressive likelihood of progression, but not certainty. And it's agnostic about mechanism. There are all sorts of possible reasons why substance A may increase the probability of B and then C. 
And only one of them is a direct effect of the substance. Maybe it is that cannabis or alcohol or nicotine makes somebody directly through a pharmacological, biological effect more likely uh, vulnerable to heroin. But maybe it's that once you get into this illness, it is, a, as I say, a continuum of a disorder and it progresses if it's unchecked. Or maybe it's about access to substances, right? The people who are smoking cannabis and drinking alcohol will be more likely to provide access to other peers who have heroin, more likely, at least, than in the church choir, for sure. And maybe it's also about exposure to deviant peers with a variety of deviant behaviors, including substance use. But in any case, the hypothesis is statistically proven. And why do we care about cannabis? And I'm going to focus there for just a minute, because the current culture has told everybody that cannabis is not a drug, it's not a problem, what's all the fuss? And it's not a big problem for most people, just as alcohol is not a big problem for most people, right? Most adults have had some alcohol experience, and some adults have had some cannabis experience, and most of them don't get into trouble. But we're concerned about vulnerable populations. Who are the vulnerable? The young people, people with psychiatric illness, and people with other substance use disorders. Today we're focusing on young people. We're also concerned about the consequences of intoxication, including motor vehicle crashes. We're concerned about psychiatric consequences of use. We don't have a lot of time to talk about that today, but psychosis, depression, anxiety, cognitive problems are all consequences, psychiatric consequences of cannabis use. But most importantly for today's discussion, the fuss is about initiation of cannabis leading in some to progression to full cannabis use disorders, and then later to other substance use disorders. And that's about the dose, because you know that today's cannabis is much more potent than your grandfather's little skinny joint. And the issue of the erroneous misperception that there is no harm, and the increasing cultural endorsement of access with medicalization and legalization. You may know that although the risk of progression to a cannabis use disorder in adults may be 10 or 20 percent, in adolescents it's probably 40 or 50 percent, and the daily use of cannabis among those under the age of 17, and that's a high bar, that's a lot of cannabis, but you may also not know that 6 percent of 12th graders use cannabis every day. That's a big number, right? Well, so the daily use of cannabis under the age of 17 increases your risk of adulthood cannabis dependence by 18-fold, increases your risk of high school dropout by three-fold, increases your risk of progression to other drugs by eight-fold, and increases your risk of a suicide attempt by seven-fold. So there's plenty of risk in contrast to the popular conception that it's no big deal. It is a big deal. So again, said this before, addiction. We want to think of it as a developmental disorder of pediatric onset. We've said this before, earlier onset is associated with worse outcomes. We've said this before, earlier intervention is more effective. Again, opioid addiction is an advanced, more malignant stage of the disorder and is preventable. And that's in large part because we can intervene in pre-opioid substances. We can intervene in adolescent cannabis use. We can intervene in adolescent alcohol use. We can intervene in adolescent nicotine use, all of which increase the likelihood of progression to opioid 
use initiation and then further progression to opioid addiction. And so those interventions are themselves prevention. So how do we do that? Uh, what's the messaging thing? Well, how do we overcome this current societal tidal wave? Well, we have been cast as puritanical and over-dramatically uh, abolition, um, um, well, as puritanical naysayers about cannabis as if it were the devil's scourge. That's not the point at all. Cannabis is addictive to some, not everyone. Cannabis is harmful to some, not everyone. But it's young people that get harmed. And if you allow broader access, that means there will be broader problem use because more young people will get a hold of it. Well, you can say, all right, don't worry, Dr. Fishman, we've assured in our medicalization or legalization program that nobody under the age of 21 will get a hold of it. What? How's that working for you with alcohol and nicotine, by the way? I don't think so. So what are we gonna do? How are we gonna respond to cannabis as medicine and cannabis as a normative consumer product? And the analogies are to think about the problems we've gotten ourselves into with the U.S. prescription opioid crisis, where the over-medicalization and access to prescription opioids increased the supply and has fueled the fire by the unintended consequence of flooding the market. And the analogy for recreational commercialization is alcohol, where young people's access to alcohol, or as we sometimes say, underage drinking, is a well-known and disastrous problem. Just to remind everybody of the problem with the culture, uh, we're fighting uh, a difficult tidal wave and we're swimming upstream because all of the messaging is that intoxication is glamorous, intoxication is a sign of the good life, and if the pop stars and the movie stars and the rich and famous are all doing it, uh, why shouldn't I do it too? This is an example of how not to do the intervention of how not to do prevention. These are kind of old fashioned uh, scare stories. And maybe some of you have seen that old fashioned 1930s movie, Reefer Madness. And if you haven't, it's on late night TV or you can YouTube it, it's a hoot. But the point is, it's bad enough that you don't have to make stuff up and lie to kids, right? Kids will know if you're telling the truth or not. This is not the way to do it. We need to establish credibility despite historic exaggeration. But the real truth is bad enough. and. What about this messaging? Hard to fight this, right? Ice cream, you scream, we all scream for cannabis ice cream. Who wouldn't want raspberry cannabis ice cream on a sweltering hot Georgia day, right? So part of the problem is that we're up against a big messaging problem. We're small voice doing the prevention work that we do, but it's God's work and it's what we gotta do. And we have to be explicit that this is a bad idea. You remember Joe Camel, and everybody said, oh, that's not targeted as kids. Cartoons for cigarettes, cartoons for alcohol, that has nothing to do with targeting kids. Yeah, sure, nor does this, cannabis ice cream. Got to be clear about the protective message to families and youth. Okay, next prevention strategy, thinking about co-occurring disorders. And I mention this because, as you well know, the incidence of co-occurring disorders among youngsters who use is high, but the other 
problem is that the incidence of progression to substance use disorders among those that have pre-existing co-occurring disorders is also off the charts. And when you talk to the parents of youngsters who have severe substance use problems, a lot of the moms and dads will say things something like, my child has always had this trouble or some trouble. That is, they've had trouble with impulsivity. They've had trouble with moodiness. They've had trouble with overreactivity and tantrums. And sometimes just thinking about tantruming at six months of age should be thought of as a risk factor for the later development of SUDs. Poor frustration tolerance, persistence of irritability and anger. So these kinds of problems with maturation and developmental trajectory are the kinds of things that parents know about that give kids enhanced risk and are also, for many, markers of co-occurring disorders, right? Here's just a picture. This should not be a surprise, this kind of stance of oppositionality, of anger, of mood lability, of always looking for fight. And there's two aspects to it. One is that it is a feature of normative adolescent development. So we said the emotional immaturity of adolescents is a vulnerability just based, just based on their age and maturation. But there's a subgroup of youngsters who even more so than just normal teenage stuff have co-occurring disorders, depression, for example, being one of the most common, but certainly others, ADHD, PTSD, others. That subgroup of trouble with affective regulation are super high risk. And here's just one glimpse of this, some data that looks at past year incidence of major depression, MDE, major depressive episode, versus no past year MDE. And it's association with increased risk of initiation of alcohol or illicit drugs by a factor of two for alcohol and a factor of three for illicit drugs. This doesn't tell you which came first, the chicken or the egg, the depression or the substances, but it does tell you they go together. That's so important. And what that means for prevention is that intervening for young people with co-occurring disorders, depression, anxiety, ADHD, et cetera, et cetera, is super helpful for being able to improve their resilience, decrease their vulnerability, and put them back on a trajectory towards health and away from this highly enriched risk of initiation of substances, which could then later progress to a full disorder. All right, last of our four prevention strategies, thinking about engaging families. Again, we could spend all day, but families are so critical, and I think we don't do enough work, certainly in the treatment field. Uh, obviously, families need to be at the center of prevention work, but we can do better. Families are so important for monitoring and supervision. Families are important for modeling of pro-social behaviors. Families are important for support for prevention interventions and support for treatment. Families are important for communication and learning to negotiate with the difficulties of growing up, troubles that all teens have, but preventing them from becoming out of control troubles. There is this difficult balance that we ask families to have between zero tolerance of substance use, and that's the right stance, right? The right amount is none. But on the other hand, we're not so naive to say that just because we say it and the mom and dad say it, that the kids won't experiment. So you have to get the parents to learn how to balance saying we have a zero tolerance expectation, but at the same time, this is compatible 
We understand that you might experiment anyway, and if you do, we're not going to cut your heads off, but we're going to debrief and talk about it and try to understand why, and we want you to come to us and be honest and tell us what happened. And when there is normative experimentation, we still want to have the channels of communication open so we can prevent it from progressing. So overall, we in the field as professional interventionists need to work super hard and harder than we have been to engage families. One of the things that we talk about in reducing the supply of opioids is getting people to throw away their own supply, right? So I think of my medicine cabinet, and I got 10-year-old antibiotics that I can't throw away because I might need them someday. That's a bad idea. So we got to get people to throw away the dangerous medicines. But in addition, there's this other tricky issue of what about adult family use, because many of these families are using. So they didn't come to you when you're doing intervention to talk about their substance use, and it's a bit tricky and it's touchy. I adopt a universal precautions kind of approach, and I say, listen, I don't know if this applies to you, but kids will do more what you do, not what you say. So if we're concerned with little Johnny's use, do me a favor. I don't know if this happens in your household, but in lots of households, people use substances socially. People drink, have them beer at the football game, I, I'm not judging. People even smoke cannabis, again, I'm not judging, I'm not saying you have a problem, that's not my business. But if we're worried about Junior, and it's a lot to ask, and I know and I'm sorry to ask it, it's better to have a substance-free household, at least temporarily, because the kids are mimics, and let's help you help Junior by doing it. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. All right, I, I wanna conclude just by giving you a glimpse of relapse prevention medicines, and I know I'm running out of time, so I'm gonna fly through this. Uh, you guys are not doing direct treatment of identified cases of opioid addiction in young people, but I want you to have heard of these medicines. Uh, these medicines we have understood in medical treatment and addiction treatment are or should be the standard of care. Those medicines are methadone, buprenorphine, and extended-release naltrexone. Buprenorphine, you might sometimes have heard of by the brand name Suboxone. Extended release naltrexone, you may have heard of by the brand name Vivitrol. It's a once a month injection. And by the way, buprenorphine is now available for a once a month injection called Sublocate. Uh, the point is that with opioids, we have these very effective medicines which really increase the likelihood patients who have the severe form of the disorder, who are addicted, increases their likelihood doing well and preventing relapse. And they are not curative. These are not the penicillin for addiction, not even the penicillin for opioid addiction. But if we don't use them, we miss an opportunity. So I just want you to know about that. And there is good evidence for their use in young people. We know that buprenorphine is effective in adolescents and young adults, although, unfortunately, it's not as effective as it is for older adults. It's still way better than the outcomes we get without the use of these medicines. Longer duration of care is better. There is no evidence for time limitation or that we should get people off in a big hurry or that we should detox, detox them off. Most people, unfortunately, drop out of treatment, retention is unfortunately not as good as we'd like, and the problem is that people don't stay on them long enough, not that we need to get them off. Extended release naltrexone or Vivitrol is quite promising, but we don't have as much research on it so far as we do on buprenorphine. The good news is, although we have to be concerned about safety in young people, as we do in all aspects of pediatric medication treatment, 
There is no signal so far, no suggestion that there are additional side effects or safety problems with any of these medicines based on age. I mean, of course, the medicines have side effects, even a Tylenol does, but nothing special for young people. So I think we've clearly established that they are safe. So medications for opioid use disorder, or MOUD, and the older term is MAT, medication-assisted treatment. I use MOUD, but MAT is fine. Is first line. There is no evidence of an approach that should be failed first. That is, young people should fail one episode of care, should have detox and then try first, should go to rehab and outpatient, and if that doesn't work, go to medicines. No way. It should be first line, and everybody with a severe opioid addiction, including adolescents and young adults, should have these medications. And the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Society of Addiction Medicine endorses that view. Unfortunately, it's not that simple. As I say, they're not curative. Can't do brain surgery on the opioid receptor. This is not penicillin. And getting people engaged, getting families to supervise it, getting people retained in care rather than dropping out is the trick that we currently face. All right, so I'm going to finish up with our conclusions. As I've said, we want to think of OUD and substance use disorder writ large as a developmental disorder of pediatric onset. In order to intervene and prevent OUD, we're going to need to address developmental vulnerability. We're going to need to address opioid supply. And that alone is not going to be enough, right? Just hounding the pharma companies, as important as that is, is not going to be enough. We need aggressive intervention in non-opioid SUD, that is cannabis, alcohol, nicotine, to prevent progression to OUD. We need to address co-occurring disorders. We need to involve families. And for those young people who have already not been prevented in their progression to OUD, that is, who already have high-severity opioid addiction, we need to get them into specialty treatment that incorporates relapse prevention medications that I briefly mentioned. So we're at a crossroads. Uh, certainly we're looking for better treatments, certainly we're looking for better prevention strategies, but we already have an existing tool chest. What we unfortunately have is an alarmingly low level of adoption and utilization. One of the best things we have, and you have this as well as I do, is being optimistic that we build relationships with young people and their families and we encourage them that this can work. So we're saving lives, but we need to do better. And finally, I wish we had this, right? I wish we could do brain transplants for, or mind transplants or spirit transplants for uh, adolescents and young adults who are on a high risk trajectory. And as science fiction as this sounds, in one way we really can do this because if we keep them alive long enough, because you guys are doing the great prevention work that you do, and people like me doing treatment are successful. If we keep them alive long enough, they will grow up and they will develop mature, resilient brains. And so maybe this is not such a hypothetical miracle. Dr. Fishman, thank you so much for an extraordinary presentation. Um, it was rich. Uh, with a lot of information that I know we can mine uh, to be able to help uh, those who are out there listening 
um, and viewing uh, with respect to their prevention efforts. Um, uh, so during this time, we'd like to have a little bit of a conversation, but also uh, to dig and delve a little deeper into some of the um, great information that you offered. Uh, but I want to start off by opening up to a, a couple of questions that came from some of our folks. So I want to get their voices and their questions in uh, right now. We have pushback from recovery from the recovery community about telling physicians to prescribe less because shortage of opioids leads to more heroin. How can we change the conversation to less new prescriptions and moderation for chronic pain? Yeah, it's a very difficult question. Um, once people are dependent on prescription opioids, as you suggest, it makes no sense to just cut them off in a cold and unthinking way. Uh, patients who are dependent need an exit strategy. They need further treatment for their pain. They need further treatment for their opioid dependence. They need strategies to get off the opioids. And it obviously is not as simple as just suck it up and stop, right? We know that uh, from our knowledge of substance use disorders. Uh, whether patients have full substance use disorders or are just dependent on their medicinal use of opioids, getting off is not trivial. And so we need a professional push to get those patients into specialty care. Many primary care docs and many pain management docs are not willing to do that tough work. So we definitely need to do that. And in addition, in terms of the initiation, we need to get the message out that although opioid pain medicines are the best things, best, among the best things since sliced bread for acute pain, when you're having surgery, when you're injured, you need them, they're great, but they just don't work very well for chronic non-cancer pain. And that message has to get out that there are other strategies, better strategies, some other medicines and some non-medicinal strategies. For example, physical therapy is so underused uh, in the system. But we haven't yet developed a robust medical delivery system that treats chronic pain. You can't do it in seven and a half minute office visits in primary care. So a lot of that work needs to be done. You're so right. So we have a question, can regular MDs prescribe MOUDs or do clients need to be referred? Great question. So methadone is the trickiest. Uh, that's usually not a youth drug, but methadone is still a, a very effective and useful medicine and it can only be prescribed in highly regulated specialty centers called opioid treatment programs or OTPs. And no, most physicians can't do that. So they need a specialty referral. Buprenorphine has the advantage that it can be prescribed in most office-based practices, either in primary care or in general SUD treatment. Doctors, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners can prescribe it in order to get a special modification to their license. They do need to take one day of specialty training, but that's relatively easy to get. And uh, many physicians have done that, and many more should do that so they can incorporate it uh, into their standard tool chest to treat patients. And naltrexone requires uh, no special training and 
every prescriber, a medical practitioner can use it. Although getting people onto naltrexone is trickier than getting them onto buprenorphine. Okay, so we have one final question. Um, she, she asked, please also address CBD, which often has detectable amounts of THC and dosage recommendations can vary greatly. Yeah, we could spend all day talking about that. So CBD is interesting. Um, so cannabis as a plant, right, has a lot of very interesting uh, ingredients in it. And in medicine, we've gotten lots of ideas from plants and then extracted them into pure form and synthesized to make drugs of the active ingredients. The idea of plant cannabis as a medicine is a little silly in my view. It's more of a folk remedy. And um, the notion that we could find what the useful ingredients are and then uh, get them at understood and exact doses uh, in scientific ways would be a much better idea. CBD is one of the ingredients, as you know, uh, and so far there is only one CBD pharmaceutical currently approved in this country. It's brand named Epidiolex, and it's approved only for the treatment of some rare and severe childhood epilepsy conditions. Um, Lennox Gasto syndrome and Dravet's syndrome. Yeah. We don't know whether it's useful yeah. for other kinds of epilepsy, and it's only available in special circumstances and not available off-label as many medicines are. The CBD that you get on the streets and from uh, general market is a hemp plant extraction usually, and you don't know what you're getting. The problem is that some CBD has marketed as no CBD, some CBD has very little CBD. Some CBD, as you suggested, is mostly or in large part THC. Each state may have different threshold requirements. In my state, Maryland, I think 3% THC is the limit past which you can't call it CBD. And um, in general, both THC and CBD have been widely exaggerated in the claims of medicinal use. Having said that, we should still do, in my view, do the research, and there's lots of interesting research out there. CBD, for example, is being researched even for use in treating addiction. That work is not concluded yet, so it's premature to jump on the bandwagon, but I think that we are going to see an explosion of new information, and at some point, uh, either Epidiolex, the currently FDA-approved version, or future drug company FDA-approved versions will come to the market, and we'll be able to learn how to incorporate that scientifically and appropriately and safely uh, into the medical tool chest. But we are not there yet. That's my word of caution. We are not there yet. So, so Dr. Fishman, so one of the things and one of the reasons why we were so happy that you were able to provide this presentation is that I thoroughly believe that um, unlike any time in our history, uh, the need for the breakdown of silos and siloed efforts, uh, silos of prevention efforts versus the silos of treatment efforts versus uh, recovery efforts um, uh, have never been as important as that is right now. We are having and forced to have conversations with each other, work together in ways that uh, we have not had uh, before. Uh, and so uh, many of our prevention uh, folks are struggling with working with our treatment resources and our recovery resources to be able to do that. 
And I was wondering if you might be able to speak to that aspect of how we can help to begin to bridge some of the gaps in our um, um, ways that we function, ways that we operate, so that we might be able to work more collectively together. And I think it really centers on an idea that you presented in your presentation, uh, the fact that this uh, that addiction and, and substance use disorder is a developmental disorder uh, with a pediatric onset, right? Uh, and the whole notion uh, that uh, developmental um, progression and developmental vulnerabilities may provide some access for prevention interventions. So I, I was hoping that you might be able to share some of your thoughts or shed some light on how we might be able to, as preventionists, work better with our treatment and our recovery colleagues and allies. Yeah, it's so important. And I think you've already uh, articulated it so well that our first step is to break down these silos, this artificial categorization of treatment versus prevention mm. is silly. It's treatment and prevention, and it's treatment is prevention, and prevention is treatment. And sure, we may have important epidemiological definitions, primary, secondary, tertiary, and I'm showing my age because I right. don't use that anymore, right? But the notion that we may have differences in emphasis for target population, but we're still all doing the same work and we got to row together and sing from a common hymn book. If you think about some of the most classic examples in public health, uh, uh, you know, the, the British cholera incident <laughs> of taking the handle off the Broad Street pump as yeah, a yeah, yeah. great uh, iconic image of how to make prevention into a treatment. It comes back to where I started. We are not going to be able to just treat our way out of this. We have to prevent the initiation of new cases and the progression of early cases to be able to make progress and save the next generation. And so thinking about integrated strategies where we work across the lifespan, where we work across the spectrum of severity and chronicity, where we move out of the specialty arena and into general care upstream in this cascade, because the touch points are much more frequent yeah. and much more motivationally motivated moments upstream. So when people come to my specialty center, they've already been around the block several times. And of course, I'm going to do my best when they present for care. But the distance they've had to go to get to me is tragic. What about upstream? What about if they were in the ED for an overdose? What about if they were in the hospital for a soft tissue infection? What about if they had a run-in with the criminal justice system? What if they saw their primary care doc or got pediatric care? Or what if their parents were concerned? Or what if their school teachers or their mental health counselors were concerned? Or what if a preventionist had been working with their big brother or big sister? All of those upstream touch points are potentially motivational moments. And integrating that into this continuum of intervention is to our progress. The continuum is, is absolutely vital. Thank you so very, very much for uh, answering the questions and, and going a bit deeper with us. Dr. Fishman, thank you so much for your time. All right, everyone. Hope that was helpful. So long.
Well done. Thank you so much, sir.